Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 159, where in a moment we chat attitude to risk and portfolio structure. That's in just a second, as I say, but please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have a load of resource of free advice right here and you can access it all simply through delving into a back catalogue of shows in our programs today we featured loads of stuff mortgages investing wills and powers of attorney and heaps more you name it we've done it pretty much and last time we chatted 10 tips to improve your credit score find the uk personal finance show with phil anderson on apple or wherever you get your podcasts and you'll get us there as i say an enormous resource all available for free Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show. Then that way you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellison, stepping in for Phil on this occasion, as he's off on holiday again, is Neil's colleague from Phil Anderson Financial Services, Andrew Schooler. Hi, Andrew. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you for stepping in when uh, well, Phil's off. So this week we're looking at attitude to risk and portfolio structure, where the second very much is determined by the first. So perhaps we should look at them in that order and tackle attitude to risk, first of all. In the world of personal finance, at least, what do you mean when you say attitude to risk? Yeah, attitude to risk is a really important factor that we use when we're determining how to invest money for clients. So attitude to risk is really, it boils down to what level of volatility a client's comfortable with, because obviously depending on how portfolios are structured and we'll come into that in more detail later on you know a portfolio can be very very volatile it can be a lot less volatile it really as in the the highs and lows so it can go up as well as down quite a significant amount depending on how things are invested what sort of levels of risk do you come across? I mean, I've heard Phil speak about things like cautious, balanced and, and speculative in the past. Yeah, you know, we tend to put clients into five categories, going from cautious to adventurous. Other uh, firms will maybe say one to ten, one being the most cautious, ten being the most adventurous. We feel one to five is is appropriate and um, you know, we get clients in every category because, you know, the, the great thing about our job and financial advice is there is no one size fits all when it comes to putting together portfolios or putting together investments for clients. So, you know, and, and it isn't a competition either. And, you know, when I'm assessing this with clients, people seem to be quite negative when they say, oh, I'm quite a cautious investor. It's like, well, it makes not the blindest bit of difference if you're a cautious investor or you're highly speculative or anywhere in between, because we've got thousands of options available for everybody in each investment category. When you're talking three, five, ten categories, um, that's quite a process. How do you establish someone's attitude to risk, presumably by asking them a question? Absolutely. There's lots of different ways that it can be done, but normally there's an attitude to risk questionnaire that we go through with clients. So it's a series of, you know, a lot of people say they're similar questions, but they're they're really kind of, there's slight nuances between each question to determine, you know, how comfortable they are with risk. They speak about losses far more than gains. Because if I was to say to you, John, so how would you feel if your investment dropped in value by 5, 10, 15, 20% 
Or if I said to you, if I flipped that question around and said, John, how would you feel if your investment grew by 5, 10, mm. 15, 20%, your, diff- your answer would be completely different. So, you know, when we're going through it, so it's we use a series of 13 questions. They're multiple choice. They're put together by a company called FE Analytics. It then produces a, a, a score at the end. But it, it very much speaks about losses rather than gains purely because, you know, if you're speaking about gains more than losses, you, you know, you're maybe setting a client up for false expectations going forward. Yeah, I had visions of you saying, right, here's the tallest building in the world and we're going to hang you out a window from it. Will you go out there in, in, in just, you know, some rubber pads? Will you go out hanging by one arm? Will you go out there with a full set of kit on? I thought it was going to be that kind of attitude to risk, but obviously not. The sort of questions that you ask, they're all geared around 5%, 10%, loss 50 So it's it, they're all of that kind of nature. The thirteen kind of well, for for example, I'll give you a scenario. So you know, and I've, I've got an attitude to risk questionnaire up just now, and uh, you know, the first question is, I would enjoy exploring investment opportunities for my money. I strongly agree, tend to agree. In between, I tend to disagree. I strongly disagree with the statement. So they, they tend to kind of go in that that kind of um, that style of answer. Mm. What amount of risk do you feel you've taken with your past financial decisions? You know, high, medium, low. You know, that that side of things. So, you know, it's it's getting an idea of what a client's experience is. It's also getting an idea of where they sit just now. But you know, when I'm going through this with clients, it, I I need to make them very aware that whatever we are providing advice on, whether it be a regular savings plan, whether it be their pension, whether it be a lump sum that they're looking to invest, that is what they're focusing on. Because some people say, well, I haven't taken any risk in the past. It's like, okay, that's fine. But you haven't taken financial advice in the past either. So, Mm. you know, so yeah, it, it, it isn't just a case of saying, here's the questions. There's guidance that's given through that, but I can't steer a client in one direction. It has to be their answers that they give. Yeah, I mean, conversely, they could say, well, you know, I, I took a lot of risks, but I also lost three-fifths of my inheritance that way, so I don't want to do that with the, the 40% I've got left. Why is attitude to risk important then? Yeah, it's, you know, from, from a regulatory point of view, we need to assess a client's attitude to risk so that we're investing money correctly for clients. Now, it's also really important that it's reassessed on a regular basis as well, because especially what, what we find with clients that are new to investment, their attitude to risk may be quite cautious initially because they have no experience on what's going on with regards to markets how you know the 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 latest financial crisis is going to affect their investments you know we obviously explain all this to them but until they've really lived with it for a year two years three years four years they can't really be referred to as an experienced investor so you know every year we will reassess this with clients to ensure that investments are still appropriate they're set up in the correct way but you know, it, it lets us know also how a client's attitude to risk is changing over the career of you know, their investment and their uh, relationship with the advisor. 
Yeah, I mean, initially, you're probably looking at a fear of the unknown. Sure, I mean, you know, they come to you because they, they want that advice. They, they've got they've got the desire to do it, but they, they need they need help and guidance sort of over the edge, if you like. I suppose, you know, the, the other thing that we've got to look at here is is capacity for loss. I've heard Phil talk about capacity for loss. Is that similar to, to attitude to risk? It goes hand in hand with attitude to risk. Um, you know, what I, you know, when we're assessing capacity for loss, we can put it pretty straightforward. It's like, well, if this investment was to drop by 10%, 15%, for example, what impact is that going to have on that client's standard of living? So that's really what their capacity for loss is. We're also looking at how long they have available to recoup losses. Now, you know, I'm fully aware that we're speaking about negativity here at the moment. We're speaking mm. about losses rather than gains. But a big part of capacity for loss is, so for example, if I had a 20-year-old client that was saving £200 a month for their retirement, their cap- their capacity for loss is really high because they've probably got 45 years of work ahead of them that they are then going to be committing money to a pension or investment. So should they be concerned about losses? Not overly in the initial stages because they've got a long time ahead of them, but somebody at retirement, so six months before they plan to retire, and what is their capacity for loss? Well, a lot less than that 20 year old because they have really no scope to either recoup those losses or re-earn those losses through through income. So so yeah, really, really important that we assess that along the way as well. I suppose, although probably quite unlikely, one of the things you, you don't want to come across is when somebody's attitude to risk is actually greater than their capacity for loss. And you have to sort of pull them into line for the sake of their own finances advise them with a, you know, a dose of reality and tell them they can't really afford for this to go wrong. Is that something you come across much? Sometimes, you know, what I would always say, the, the attitude to risk is a number and a bit of paper. It's a starting point for a conversation. So if I think somebody is taking undue risk or is saying, yeah, I'm a highly speculative investor, but they don't need to be, we will have that conversation. I've got a duty of care as a financial advisor to to do that. But at the end of the day, if a client is, you know, this is the way that we want to go down, that's absolutely fine. We can set our plans in that way with a few that we will review them on a regular basis just in case. But, you know, an an interesting one I've had recently with clients is, you know, they haven't required to take risk to achieve their goals. So should we be taking risk in the first place? And that's a really interesting question at the moment saying, well, you know, if your objectives do not require you to take risk, then why are you taking risk? So, yeah, it's, yeah. so yeah, it, it, it's, it's a really valid point. I don't suppose that always, just going down that road for a second, I don't suppose it always follows that uh, if they do take risk, there's a chance of greater reward. You know, in, in theory, over a medium to long term, you would always expect an investment to perform better than, let's say, cash. But we're in a really interesting position at the moment where Bank of England base rate is actually quite high. You know, so, you know, you know, we were speaking about NSNI bonds in a previous episode. You know, they've issued a bond, a one year bond that's 6.2%. You know, if that's what a client's objective is for growth, and they can receive that via a cash-based, no-risk vehicle, 
then, you know, that's a conversation that we have to have with clients. It isn't just all about we have to invest money for clients. We do the right thing for the client. And if they can achieve that goal without taking risk, brilliant. When you're talking about an attitude to risk, presumably there's a minimum figure that you have to be talking about before you even sort of pull up at the starting line here. I mean, imagine not everyone is, is eligible. At the very least, you've got to have some disposable income or you couldn't even consider this at all. But, I mean, that's just simple math. So, so typically, what is that base number or sort of minimum area where you'd have to be before you could even consider having this conversation? Well, I'll I'll rephrase that slightly and I'll, I'll, and I'll say, you know, what, what what should you have in savings before you start considering investments? Now, you've maybe heard of me speak about a three-pot strategy that, that I have with clients. So pot one being day-to-day spending money, that's your current account. Pot two being an emergency fund. So that'll be some form of cash-based savings that you go to to get, you know, there's a large bill that comes in. The car needs fixing, roof needs repairing, et cetera. That's pot two. Investment planning, whether it be retirement, ISAs, et cetera, investment ISAs, that's pot three. That's what I deal with. So when pot two is full, now there is no formula that says how much a client should hold in pot two. I've got clients who hold £5,000 in an emergency fund. I've got clients who hold £250,000 in an emergency fund, and it's entirely up to them. That is what they're comfortable with holding in cash, and and that's fine. But over and above that, that's really when financial planning comes into its own. If a client doesn't have pot two, doesn't have anything in pot two at all, it's always the best advice to say, right, we need to start accruing money in an emergency fund for you first. When that's full, then we'll look at whether it's lump sum investments or regular investments for clients going forward. I'm wondering how big your roof has to be to have two hundred and fifty thousand pounds in your emergency, in your emergency fund. <laughs> Maybe um, multiple roofs. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking Windsor Castle. There's, there's obviously a, a a very regimented way for assessing all this information on a customer, a checklist, if you like. Despite that, presumably, repeated reminding to the client there are external factors at play. I mean, this is our best assessment of the markets given the present conditions. There must be occasions where the entire playing board sort of goes out the window for something completely unforeseen and money is lost. The attitude to risk is tested to the limit, perhaps not in your own personal experience, but the law of averages suggests that it must have happened in the world of financial advice at some point somewhere. What happens if the client turns around and says at that point, well, this is all your fault, you've lost my money. I mean, are there any famous real-life examples where that's happened? You know what, the the last 18 months has been really challenging for investments and and there is no hiding from that fact. And probably the last 18 months has, has, you know, for cautious investors, so people that have a low tolerance to risk, it's been the most demanding for them. And I'll, I'll go into a little bit of kind of reasons why, you know, this kind of feeds into a little bit on portfolio structure, but I'll I'll, I'll touch on it just now because, the like I say, the, it's cautious investors that have really had a horrible time of things over the last 18 months. So historically, a cautious investor is predominantly investing money in what was known as low risk or low volatile, uh, volatility asset classes. And these are things called bonds and gilts. So loans to large corporations and governments, also known as fixed interest as well, because they pay a fixed interest for a period of time, capital is repaid at the end. 
always seen as low risk investments, but we had the issue over the last 18 months that we had every single month we had interest rate rises. Now, as the name suggests, fixed interest, the interest doesn't change on these loans. So we have a chunk of fixed interest out there. So loans to large corporations, governments that they're paying a very low interest rate on. Now, the value of those loans um, fell sharply over the last 18 months. We even saw a fund called Pension Protector Fund, which was 100% bonds and gilts. And a lot of workplace pensions used that for people that were approaching retirement age. In eight months of 2022, it fell by 53%, which is quite an astonishing amount for what's seen as a low-risk, low-volatility fund to fall by. So, you know, when you know, if we're looking at losses in the last 18 months, it is the cautious investors. And and this is this is the real real issue just now is is this still an appropriate route to be investing money for clients? Now that's not my decision, that's portfolio managers' decisions to 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 look at. But bonds and gilts going forward will be very interesting, but just now they're very volatile and you know it, it's a rocky ride still. Okay, well, let's move on to the portfolio structure then. So you've done your homework on that first part and you've established where your client is and that attitude to risk model, if you like. You're moving on to recommendations for their portfolio structure. We want to know how that might look for each type of investor. So let's say we've got these different types, the cautious, the balanced, the speculative, long-term investors. feels kind of like the, the foolish man built his house in the sand and the wise man in the rock, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Do you want to take us through some broad examples of how it might look, starting with the sort of cautious long-term investor. You, you kind of, I suppose, given the, the game away a little bit on um, on the last couple of years for them, but uh, work our way up to the, the sort of other end of things, yeah. starting from cautious. Perfect. So, so yeah, we, we touched a little bit on a cautious investor and, and this is really, you know, I'll, I'll put it in simple terms and there's a little bit of flexibility within here, but, you know, when we look at a cautious investor, the majority of the funds you know, 60, 70, 80% of the portfolio will be held in what's known as, you know, is, is low or inverted commas, low volatility investments. So fixed interest, so bonds, gilts. There will also be cash involved in that portfolio. Interestingly, becoming a bigger part of portfolios going forward because, you know what, we can get 5.25% from the Bank of England. So why isn't cash part of a portfolio of, a, of an overall investment. The remaining parts of the uh, investment, so anywhere from 40, 20 to 40% that's left in the portfolio, we're looking at equities, so stock markets, so not just UK, but worldwide. We're looking at alternatives, which is also known as commodities. So your tangible things, your uh, oil, your gas, your gold, etc. And, you know, there there can be some property built into portfolios as well, but property is is normally commercial property. And, you know, if if you walk down any high street at the moment, you'll know how well commercial property is doing just now, and Hmm. it's not doing fantastic. So we're, we're seeing less and less of that in portfolios. So, you know, 
that that's a cautious investor. Now, moving to a balanced investor, now, as the name would suggest, you've got an even mixture between equity, so stock market related, and then the fixed interest or the stability in inverted commas part. So you could be looking at about a 50-50 split. So 50% equity, which has always been seen to be a more volatile investment over the long term, and around 50% in the stability. When we then move on to the speculative, we're still a bit of diversification within there, but the tables have turned completely. So we're maybe more looking at around 80% of the portfolio is in equities, so stock market related, and then just a small percentage, 20 or even less than that sometimes, in the stability elements, the fixed interest, the cash, et cetera, that, and that side of things. What is the thing to stress here, and this is maybe my fault in the way that I served it up, although you're at the, the speculative investor end of the scale, it's not like you're walking into a casino and heading for the roulette wheel and just throwing your chips all over the table. There's years of training and research goes into this. It's not just blind luck gambling. It's painstaking analysis based on trends and market behavior and a, a bunch of other stuff, most likely. But the important part is, although advisors say nobody can predict the future, you're walking a line where actually that's kind of what you're being paid to do to the best of your abilities, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, a, a client's employing our services to always to try and get a better return. That That's the bottom line. They'll have objectives. It's our job to put together or to use a suitably diverse portfolio for them because you're absolutely right. Nobody knows what's going to happen next week, next month, next year. So if we have a portfolio that's suitably diverse for a client, we know we're going to have exposure in areas that's doing really well. So let's say China, for example, their equities do fantastically well over the next year. We know we'll have at least some exposure within the portfolio there. If, for example, fixed interest does fantastically well, we know we're going to have some exposure in there. And you know, there there was a there was a fantastic line that I heard from a, a portfolio manager, and you know, within your portfolio, you should always have something in there that concerns you, because if you are happy with absolutely everything in your portfolio it's all aligned to go in the same direction. So, you know, it, it basically means at some point in time, a port, parts of the portfolio will be up, some will be down, but they'll flip around, you know, that mm. will come up when the other parts are down. So no, it, it, it's it's difficult. You know, do you sleep lose sleep at night over it? <laughs> Sometimes you do, because, <laughs> you know, th this is clients' life savings that they can be entrusting with you. So there's a massive responsibility there from advisors to do the right thing for clients. Absolutely. Now, as we always do with Phil in the podcast, we take a look at how the subject matter has affected his own life, both professionally and personally. So what do you want to focus on from today's show? Attitude to Risk. And portfolio structure. You're not about to tell me that you've been you've had sleepless so many sleepless nights that you're now pulling out of the finance market. No, 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 not at all. I love my job. Absolutely love my job. But don't get me wrong, it, it can be really stressful. What I feel is really important, you know, just digressing ever so slightly, mm. is is at least keeping a line of conversation open with clients. So, you know, the, the worst thing you can do as a financial advisor is to bury your head in the sand. 
you know, so you need to have those conversations with clients. You need to say, well, this is how things are performing. This is how we're doing against a benchmark. This is um, where you were and that side of things. But, you know, there are so many clients or there are so many, not clients, there are so many people out there that have workplace pensions that are set up in a way that's no longer suitable to meet their needs. So I would, you know, if I had one piece of advice for anybody out there is please look at your workplace pensions, see how they're invested. If you've never looked at it, please speak to an independent financial advisor to, you know, is it still appropriate for you? Because there are so many different options out there for you. Just to to give you an example of the way the world has changed, this isn't talking about a a pension, but it was talking about an ISA, which I had, you know, when you were talking about um, someone who's 20 years old, having probably um, quite a high attitude to risk and also having a lot of time ahead of them to earn money back if they were to lose it when they invested. I had an ISA, and this is going back to when I just started working, and the way that it was invested then they talked about there being sort of high elements of risk and low elements of risk. And the low end of things was investing in Western European markets. And the high end of things was investing in what they saw as could be quite good, but also quite risky. We're looking at Asia. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that's going back, oh gosh, longer than I care to remember, to be perfectly honest. I wouldn't imagine that's the sort of thing that you would get if you walked in and tried to do that process all over again now, Andrew. It's it's really interesting, you know. It, it's a really valid point because you know within each different asset class, and we've spoken about asset classes in the past, the different types of uh, parts of investments. But within each asset class, there is different risk levels within e- each element. So mm-hmm. I'm using a broad brush, saying fixed interest is 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 known as low volatility, low risk. But within that you could have a loan to a highly speculative new tech startup that you know effectively could you know go bust in a month's time mm. or in a year's time and so so you know even though fixed interest is known as low risk it's then you know that that's quite a high risk element of that asset class conversely equities are classified as higher risk but if you put money in bp or shell you you know you're gonna have a you know or a, or a big blue chip company yeah you're getting dividends every quarter or every year however they're paid you've got a share price that goes up and down depending on what oil prices are etc that side of things but it's a relatively safe company to be investing money in so yeah, it's 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 a really interesting conversation around risk in the different areas. So yeah, it's um it isn't it isn't just a like I say a, a broad brush within each asset class. There's loads of different risk considerations that we need to take. Okay, Phil is always very keen on trying to help you with your query. So if ever you want to email a question to us, please do. And as always, we can ask them anonymously if you prefer. Let's get on to this week's. Phil is uh, obviously being deputised by Andrew in this instance. Contact details in a moment and I'll give it to you after this. Hi, Phil. I heard earlier this week there are proposals from the Conservatives and the idea of scrapping inheritance tax. Realistically, do you think this is likely? And if so, will it actually be a good thing? Or will they then just have to find that income by taxing us in another fashion. I think this is probably a conversation which 
like a lot of others, comes around when we get to party conference season or just around that point in time. But take us through it, Andrew. Yeah, funny that it being an election year coming up soon. Mm. Yeah, th- this is completely out of left field, scrapping inheritance tax. You know, taxation has changed dramatically over the last few years. Income tax has changed. Capital gains tax has changed. Corporation tax has changed. And dividend tax has changed. Really the only, and, and all for the worse, in my view, you know, as in the allowances you get have reduced. Mm. With regards to inheritance tax, I had an idea that things were going to change dramatically. Not like this, but there's basically, for a married couple, there's a million pounds that you have of an allowance between no-rate band and and property no-rate band, up to a million pounds of inheritance no-rate band before tax is due. In my view... I thought that that would come down dramatically. So maybe from a million pounds, maybe come down to 200,000 pounds. But the tax amount changed from 40% down to maybe 5% or 10%. So it would bring a whole heap of people into the taxable position, but not necessarily tax the people who are already in that position anymore. But what this has done is this has basically handed a million pounds to the wealthiest one percent in the UK. So so it's 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 quite a quite a bold move if they do scrap it. And you know it, it generates about four point five billion pounds every year mm-hmm. inheritance tax. So you know it's always seen a tax on the rich, but you know that they'll that will then need to be found somewhere else. It's a black hole to fill, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the government's coffers aren't massive just now. So, you know, big bills to pay. So does that mean that income tax is going to change? Does that mean there's going to be changes elsewhere? So, yeah, it's it's a really bold move. And like I say, completely from left field, I was not expecting that to happen at all. Mm. I wonder whether it will still go through or not. I, I mean, it's interesting. Next up, here's one from Kelly and Elderly who asks, Hi, Phil, I'm due to finish repaying my mortgage in the next couple of years. And I'm delighted that's the case. But I have a rough recollection of hearing something before where a friend was recommended to keep their mortgage open with a nominal amount in it, like a pound. Would that be correct? And if so, why? Is it something I should look at too? First of all, speak to your lender, first of all, on that side of things. Now, there can be some reasons for that. Now, if you pay off your mortgage completely, normally the bank will then discharge your title deeds. They'll give you your title deeds back to you. There may be a charge involved in doing that because, you know, they basically hold the title deeds and they then have to... um, produce them back to you so you know double check if you do pay off in full what is the cost basically if you keep a pound within there the bank will hold on to your title deeds for you and then you don't need to worry about having them somewhere safe so or giving them to a solicitor or paying for safe storage so that can be a reason why other reasons can be well you know if you're planning on doing borrowing in the future there can be you know less costs involved in setting up that borrowing facility because that bank already has a title deeds so there can be a number of reasons why but i would always say check with your lender find out if there are any charges if you pay it off 
and what the implications are then on you receiving your title deeds at that point in time. Would you say as well, before you get in touch with the question, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue because we've covered a fair few topics so far and we may have touched on what you're interested in. I'm John Mellis. Thank you for joining us for episode 159 of the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. And thank you to Phil's colleague, Andrew Schooler, for deputising today. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Or why not email Phil a question he can answer on a future show. His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question and Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast, as I say. And please be assured we won't use your real name if that's how you prefer things. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us. And please follow us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. And thanks for listening. Thank you.